is going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in today. It is the holiday season. Tomorrow is Christmas. I hope you guys have a wonderful Christmas or happy holiday, whatever you celebrate, and that it is a lovely, lovely weekend for all. Yes, we hope everybody has a good holiday season. We're excited about it. And today we have a crazy case out of the Colorado Rocky Mountains. Yes, it is officially winter now, and this is a very, very wintry case. So buckle up and let's talk about it. All right, guys, this is episode 160 of Going West. So let's get into it. We've got a very different kind of sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast you should definitely check out since you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating podcasts hosted by interesting people. The Jordan Harbinger Show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests, and there are a ton of episodes that you're going to find interesting. Jordan is super charismatic and well-voiced, so I loved listening to his recent episode with Susan Casey called Unraveling Mysteries in the Ocean's Darkest Depths. It was so creepy and interesting, and he goes across every category with other episodes like Romance Twister, My Mister Once Dated My Sister, or his monthly Skeptical Sunday episodes about controversial topics from crystal healing to cannabis to Ouija boards. There is something for everyone. We really enjoy this show, and we think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com start for some episode recommendations or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In January of 1982, two beautiful young women seemingly vanished in Breckenridge, Colorado during a relentless snowstorm. But the next day, one would be found dead, and several months later, the other body would turn up as well. As police struggled to find the identity of a cold-blooded killer, the investigation would take a number of unexpected turns 
that would last almost 40 years. This is the story of Bobby Joe Oberholzer and Annette Schnee, also known as the Rocky Mountain Murders. Barbara Jo Burns, who everybody called Bobby Joe, was born on Christmas Day, 1952, to parents Thomas Edward Burns and Dory Sardik in Racine, Wisconsin. Bobby Joe grew up alongside her older brother Kelly, and her father Tom was the owner of an electric appliance repair store. Bobby Joe was a beautiful, blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl who loved the outdoors and animals, especially horses and she attended Park High School in Racine, where she graduated in the spring of 1971. She was described as having a huge heart and not a single mean bone in her body. And during high school, she met a guy named Jeff Oberholzer, and the two fell for each other pretty quickly. And in 1972, the couple had a daughter who they named Jackie. So they had Jackie just out of high school. And Bobby Joe and Jeff married in July of 1977, so about five years later, but they decided that they needed a change of scenery. So they moved all the way from Wisconsin to a tiny mountain town in Colorado called Alma in May of 1980. Bobby Joe loved the fresh mountain air, as we know she was super outdoorsy, and she even acquired a wild Mustang horse that she was training as well as raising and taking care of some birds from the nest to flight. And Jeff was settling in well, too, and opened up an appliance repair store in the town as well. And it's funny that he, he did this just because Bobby Joe's dad owned an electric appliance repair store. So and now he has an appliance repair store. Yeah, so, so he, probably, he probably learned his skills from Bobby Joe's dad. Yeah, I wonder if he did. So anyway, Alma, Colorado is located in Park County, Colorado, and it's about two hours west of Denver. And it's actually the highest incorporated town in the U.S., at 10,578 feet. But just 16 miles north of Alma is the ski and snowboard town of Breckenridge, which sits at the base of the Rocky Mountains. Its picturesque mountain views filled with trees make it an extremely popular destination for winter thrill seekers. And in fact, today, it's the home to many different world-renowned ski and snowboard competitions, including the Dew Tour. Today, the town hosts about 5,000 residents, but back in 1980, there were roughly 1,200 who called this scenic mountain town home, and it's where Bobby Joe was employed. She worked for a local real estate developer's office as a secretary, and she absolutely loved her job. And it also gave her the opportunity to make new friends. And she was really good at her job. So much so that in early January of 1982, she was actually promoted by the office that she worked for. On Wednesday, January 6, 1982, Bobby Joe met up with some of her co-workers at a bar in Breckenridge called the Village Pub, which sounds very cozy for the winter. It does sound cozy. And by the way, this bar was actually located in a mall called the Bell Tower Mall. It sat right off of Main Street and hosted a few different businesses in its two-story space, including Bobby Joe's real estate office. So the Village Pub was a great place for after-work drinks because it was so close. Bobby Joe had called her husband, Jeff, at about 6 p.m. that night to share the exciting news that she was being promoted to manager and that she was going to go celebrate with some coworkers. But she also told him that she didn't need a ride home because she lived about 16 miles south of Breckenridge, so one of her coworkers would give her a ride. And after a few drinks and some good company, 
Bobby Jo felt that it was time for her to go home, especially because her husband Jeff had prepared dinner for the family. But her coworkers weren't ready to end their night, so at about 7.50 p.m., Bobby Jo decided to leave alone and hitch a ride home. Her friends were away from the bar at the time, so she just told the bartender to inform her friends that she was leaving. So that night, which again was January 6th, the weather was less than favorable. In fact, Jeff Oberholzer later explained that it was one of the worst nights that they had seen all season, with temperatures dropping below negative 20 degrees Fahrenheit, and a snowstorm was beating up the mountain. But catching a ride was a pretty easy task in the town of Breckenridge, especially back in the 1980s. It was a fairly small town and almost everybody knew each other, so if a motorist saw someone standing out in the snow, they would most likely pick them up. This was so common that there was even a designated spot for hitchhikers to find a ride even easier, and that location was about a block away from the Bell Tower Mall at a local Minute Mart where Bobby Joe would be seen for the last time. At 11.30 p.m. that night, Jeff Oberholzer woke up and realized that he had fallen asleep on the couch after dinner while watching TV and waiting for Bobby Joe to arrive home. He originally believed that maybe Bobby Joe had just stayed a little bit longer to celebrate, and that's why she hadn't returned for dinner. But now it was late, and he was really worried, so he started to call the friends that Bobby Joe had been out with to see if they had seen her. But after 8 p.m., nobody had. After two hours of waiting, Jeff finally decided that he needed to track down his wife. So at 1.30 a.m., after the bars had already closed, he headed over Hoosier Pass towards Breckenridge to find her. Jeff first stopped by Bobby Joe's office at the Bell Tower Mall to see if maybe she had fallen asleep there. But the building was all locked up when he arrived, and it didn't appear that anybody was there. So after this, he drove down to the Breckenridge Police Department to report her missing. But when he did so... The officer on duty told Jeff that he needed to give it till the morning, and if she hadn't been found by then, to come back and file a report. But Jeff just really wasn't satisfied with that answer, and he just took matters into his own hands, gathering a search team of local friends and acquaintances to help him find Bobby Joe. So back at home, Jeff was preparing to start his search at sunrise when he received a phone call from a local rancher who had some disturbing news. This man had called Jeff to tell him that he had found Bobby Joe's driver's license, just laying in the snow off of US Highway 285. Jeff decided that he wasn't gonna wait for police to join him, so he and a friend made the trip towards the rancher's home. But after 12 miles of driving Highway 285, Jeff noticed something familiar lying just off the road in a snowbank and immediately told his friend to pull over. The night that Bobby Joe disappeared, she was wearing a blue-colored backpack, and that's exactly what Jeff saw just off of the road. But when he approached the backpack, it wasn't the only item that he found, and what he found next made his stomach sink. Lying on the ground right next to the backpack was a tannish gray-colored winter glove, and it was covered in blood. Right beside the glove was also a balled-up tissue that appeared to have droplets of blood on it as well. And Jeff knew that the glove and the backpack definitely belonged to Bobby Joe. Inside the backpack, Jeff found Bobby Joe's makeup, a pair of sunglasses, a hairbrush, and a stack of Jeff's business cards for his appliance store called Alpine Appliance. Jeff informed police that he and a friend had not only found Bobby Joe's driver's license, 
but also her backpack and a glove, which were located five miles apart on the same road. So it seemed that if Bobby Joe was abducted, the perpetrator discarded her personal items while driving. Jeff wanted to follow through with his plans to organize a search party with friends, and he did so by starting a search at the top of Hoosier Pass. Hoosier Pass has an elevation of 11,539 feet, and it marks the Continental Divide in the Rocky Mountains, and it also sits between Ulma, where Jeff and Bobby Joe lived, and Breckenridge. He knew that starting his search at the top and then heading down in elevation was probably the easiest way to search. So he and a few carloads of friends began their descent just before 3 p.m. on January 7th. So remember, this is the next day, the day after she was last seen. And among Jeff's friends were a few guys who had brought along their skis because there was a trail that sat parallel to the highway that they could take and the skis would kind of ensure that they could cover ground quickly. But 100 yards down the slope, one of the men noticed something lying down an embankment off the highway in the snow, and it appeared to be a human body. Upon further inspection, they immediately recognized the remains to be that of 29-year-old Bobby Joe Oberholzer. The skiers decided that it was best not to touch or move the body, but instead, they climbed the embankment to Colorado Highway 9 and flagged down a police vehicle to help out. And remember, I mean, at this point, like the police are not looking for Bobby Joe, and really the only reason she was found as soon as she was is because of Jeff and all the friends. Yeah, exactly. And in an interview later, the investigators on the case said that they weren't extremely happy that Jeff decided to take it into his own hands, but they're kind of glad in hindsight that he did because obviously he found Bobby Joe. Right. I mean, and, and so quickly too, if you think about it, I mean, just a hundred yards down, they already found her the very next day. And I mean, as we'll discuss, police think that this is kind of suspicious. Absolutely. I mean, he found all this evidence and her body fairly quickly. So Bobby Joe's body was found lying face up and a trail of blood droplets indicated that she had been injured near the highway and then had slid down a snow embankment off the highway where she eventually died. Her head was facing towards the highway and her knees were bent as if she was trying to stop herself from sliding down the snowbank. And it didn't appear that she had been sexually assaulted either. Initially, Detective Jim Hardkey, who worked for the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, couldn't determine how Bobby Joe had died, but discovered something that made him feel that foul play was involved right off the bat. Two plastic zip ties were found attached to Bobby Joe's left wrist, indicating that someone had likely tried to bind her before death. This also means that the abductor was unsuccessful in their attempt at restraining Bobby Joe and that she was able to get away momentarily before being killed. When an autopsy was conducted, it was determined that Bobby Joe had suffered two gunshot wounds from a 38 caliber or possibly a 357 handgun, and the bullet was a jacketed hollow point manufactured by Remington, one to her right breast that appeared to be a grazing shot and the other that had pierced her right side of her back. She also had scrape marks on her knees as if she had fallen in some gravel while escaping. But the saddest part of all is that neither one of Bobby Joe's gunshot injuries were fatal and that she had actually died by freezing to death while she bled out. The evidence points to Bobby Joe's attempted escape where she had almost made it out alive. 
Yeah, it's just devastating that she had to lay there in the snow in the dark after being shot twice and and just waits to die. Like, God damn, that's just so sad. Yeah, and if somebody had just happened to come along and find her, they could have got her medical attention and she probably would have survived. Well, especially because she wasn't, you know, like we've mentioned, she wasn't that far away. Like it was it was pretty easy to find her. Yeah, she was right off the road. So the crime scene was sectioned off by detectives, of course, in order to see if they could discover any other clues as to who committed this horrible crime against such a beautiful and innocent woman. And as investigators started scouring the highway, they came across Bobby Joe's knit beanie, her other glove, and a key ring with a hook attached to it that was supposed to be used as a defensive tool. So she had this like self-defense keychain that we'll talk about. Yeah, it looks like a little, like, um, I don't even know what kind of hook it is, but it's a hook. Yes. So Jeff knew that his wife hitchhiked often because as we mentioned earlier, you know, in the town at that time in the early 80s, it was completely normal. So he had made Bobby Joe that key ring kind of for her to use, you know, in case she got into any trouble. And it appeared that the night she was killed, she had tried to use it. And also, I had read that one of Bobby Joe's rules was she never got into a car or a car or a vehicle with two men, and she never got into a van where you couldn't like see out of the windows. That that was like her two bugaboos as far as hitchhiking. Smart gal. Yeah, and I and I know a lot of you guys are against hitchhiking, and nowadays it's very frowned upon. But back in that time, it just was so normal, as we've mentioned, like. Everybody was doing it. Well, I think the reason it's more frowned upon now, or at least not looked at as the smartest thing to do, is because of cases like this, where something happens to people or women who hitchhike. So, you know, but back in the 80s, like you're saying, it was a lot more common. And this was the time when these kinds of murders happened when women were hitchhiking. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of like we had to learn from these experiences over time. Exactly. So back to the key ring. So it had been found further down the road, about 130 yards away, in a parking lot highway pull-off. But the strangest thing that detectives discovered that day just couldn't be explained at this time. Lying near the key ring was an orange footy sock. But the thing is, Bobby Jill was found with both of her socks on, and neither one of them were orange. So how did this sock get there? And was it connected to Bobby Joe's murder? If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improved jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volix XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, 
blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medications that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit Juvederm.com. As true crime listeners, you're aware of the dangers out there in the world. So why not keep your home as safe and secure as possible? Daphne and I do this by using Simply Safe. For award-winning security and peace of mind wherever your summer plans take you. When we get ready for our summer trips this year, I will feel so much better about leaving the house knowing that Simply Safe has our back, just freeing me from my constant anxieties. And also something I love is that their system blankets your entire home in protection from break-ins to fires to floods. And with indoor and outdoor cameras to choose from, you will feel safe any time of day or night. And Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring agents to help stop crimes in real time. Which is part of why they were named the best home security system of 2024. Simply Safe has given us and so many listeners real peace of mind, and we want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash going west. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face, but now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Of course, in typical fashion, police wanted to question the person closest to Bobby Joe, 
and that person was Jeff Oberholzer. But it wasn't just the fact that Jeff was Bobby Joe's husband. Police also found it suspicious that he had been the one to find critical evidence in the case before police had. And to make matters worse, Jeff was also acting really strange in the weeks after Bobby Joe's body was discovered. He had fully inserted himself into the investigation, acting as somewhat of a detective himself by interrogating other locals for information about his wife's death. Which, in retrospect, you know, we're going to talk more about Jeff, but in retrospect, this is actually a good thing, you know? I think it's more suspicious to not give a shit than it is to give a shit. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that. You know, but on top of this, there was really no one who could corroborate Jeff's story that he had been at home when Bobby Joe went missing. Well, I know that at this time, their daughter was, what, like 11 years old? So I, I, I didn't personally read anything about where she was that night. Do you know where she was or if she was maybe asleep or if she was home? I tried to find information about their daughter and whether or not she was even living with them at that time. I'm not even really sure about that, so I can't. I can't say. I think even then, you know, she's still pretty young to where maybe police wouldn't find her, you know, information reliable anyway, because maybe her dad told her to say that. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's not like she saw her mom go missing or something like that. So that totally makes sense. But, you know, Jeff agreed to take two separate polygraph tests and he passed both of them with flying colors. And without any physical evidence tying him to Bobby Joe's murder, police kind of had to momentarily rule him out as a suspect, but they did keep an eye on him. So now police really didn't have any clues, but they did have Bobby Joe's bloody glove, so they sent it off to a lab to be tested, just kind of hoping that a blood type could narrow down their suspect list, which was pretty short anyway. But when the glove was tested, the results came back as Bobby Joe's blood type, so this kind of didn't help at all. After that, the investigation went cold, that is, until one day in May of 1982, when another body surfaced in Park County. On Saturday, July 3rd, 1982, so about six months after Bobby Joe was found murdered, a 13-year-old boy was fishing in a rural part of Park County at the Sacramento Creek, which, by the way, was only about five miles from where Bobby Joe's body was discovered, when he saw something strange floating in the water. When the boy got closer, he realized that it was human remains lying face down in the water, and he immediately ran home to phone the police. When detectives arrived at the scene, they immediately noticed a single bullet hole in the jacket that the deceased person was wearing. And this, of course, gave them chills, thinking back to Bobby Joe's cause of death. But due to the advanced state of decomposition, police couldn't identify the victim visually but after searching the pockets of the victim's jacket, they found a wallet insert, and inside was a driver's license and a social security card belonging to a 21-year-old woman named Annette K. Schnee. So at this point, I mean, police realize that Bobby Joe wasn't the only girl to go missing on that cold and stormy January night months earlier. Right, so now they're thinking... Do we have a potential serial killer on our hands? Like, what's going on here? Well, I think it's interesting that they went missing on the same night because I feel like that doesn't really happen. You know, it's either, it's like maybe they both went missing around the same time, but not on the same night. Yeah, so whoever this person was, whoever this perpetrator was, was pretty aggressive. Annette Schnee was born on January 16th, 1960 in Sioux City, Iowa to her mother Eileen and her stepfather Laurel Franklin. 
She grew up with her two brothers, Russell and Dennis, her sister Karen, her stepbrother Larry, and also her half-sister Cindy, but she was close with all of them. Sadly, her brother Dennis passed away in 1978 when he suffered an electric shock while on a roof and fell to his death. God, talk about a freak accident. Yeah, I know, and he seemed so, he was so young too. Annette was described as a stunning model type. She was tall with light brown hair and beautiful eyes, and her former high school boyfriend said that she was liked by everyone. She was also described as pretty outgoing and goofy, but also a person who cared for others deeply. She attended East High School in Sioux City, where she was a part of the drill team before graduating in 1978. After graduation, she decided to move to Omaha, Nebraska and attend Patricia Stevens College, which is essentially like a beauty and business school, where she wanted to become a model. But after a year there, she decided that she wanted to move to Colorado and had dreams of becoming a flight attendant. And when she found out that there was a room available at a house in Blue River, occupied by five other single females, Annette jumped at that opportunity. And Blue River, by the way, is located between Breckenridge and Alma, where Bobby Joe lived. And it's right near Hoosier Pass and about 10 minutes south of Breckenridge. So very close to Breckenridge. Annette had moved to the area in 1981 and she absolutely loved the scenery. She was able to get a job in the neighboring town of Frisco, which is just north of Breckenridge, where she worked as a housemaid for the Holiday Inn. But hours were somewhat slim, so she decided to acquire a second job right there in Breckenridge at a bar called The Flipside, located on Main Street. On January 6, 1982, that fateful night, Annette had just finished her shift at 3.30 p.m. at the Holiday Inn, but she was feeling a bit under the weather. She did have another shift that night at 8.30 p.m. at the Flipside, but she needed to pick up a prescription for medicine before then. So just like Bobby Joe, she decided to hitchhike to Breckenridge. Thankfully, Annette was able to make this trip safely, and she arrived at the pharmacy right around 4.30 p.m. We know this because the pharmacist working that day remembered her, and another witness described that she was with another woman, and Annette was overheard asking this woman to remember to grab cigarettes from the drugstore. But to this day, we have no idea who this woman was. Which is so bizarre, because if she's saying, oh, don't forget the cigarettes, like obviously this is somebody she's with, and why did this woman never come forward? It's just so weird. That, and like, was it one of her roommates? Like, was it, you know, a why would a her co-worker? roommates not be like, oh yeah, I was with her there? Like, why, how would this person never come forward? That's what I'm saying. And this isn't the only mystery in this story, which we'll get into later. So after she picked up her prescription, Annette left with the intention of returning home to Blue River to change into her Western-style waitress dress before heading to her shift at the flip side. But... Annette never made it home that day. And two days later, she was reported missing by a colleague of hers at the Holiday Inn when she missed her shift. Sorry to keep interjecting, but again, this makes it even weirder about this woman because if the last place she is seen is at this pharmacy and this woman never came forward to be like, oh yeah, I saw her get into a car, I saw her this, like, what the hell? Like, this woman would be pretty crucial to the case. And where is she? Just a complete mystery. So Annette's mother, Eileen, was informed that her daughter was missing, and when investigators checked Annette's room, they found that her waitress uniform had been untouched in her closet. 
And in the weeks after Annette's puzzling disappearance, her siblings actually made it out to Park County to help search for clues, but nothing had initially been found due to the heavy amount of snow, and it wouldn't be until that summer that her remains would be found. When Annette's body was discovered, she was wearing a pair of pants, a blue jacket with the single bullet hole in it, a light brown pair of boots, and a long striped sock on her right foot. But when Detective Jim Hartke removed her left boot, he was baffled at what he saw. An orange footsie sock was on Annette's left foot. And in that moment, he knew that Bobby Joe's murder and Annette's murder had to be connected. So the weird thing here to me, so I mean, basically like her mom confirmed that the orange socks were Annette's because she had been the one to gift them to her and she's the one who chose the orange color because it was Annette's old high school color. But it's weird if on her right foot she's wearing a long striped sock and then a short footy sock that's orange on her other foot and then the other sock would be found. You know what I'm saying? Like, wouldn't that other sock be in her drawer if she decided to wear mismatched socks? I mean, yeah, that's one of the things that I don't, I can't understand either, like about this case is why was there the orange sock found at Bobby Joe's crime scene was, and then why was the other sock found on Annette? I, I don't know. This part's really weird to me, but obviously it's the same sock, so I don't know if she had the orange sock over the other one, but I don't know why she was even wearing the striped sock, but anyway, it doesn't really matter. So to Annette's cause of death, she had suffered one gunshot to her back, likely caused by a 38 caliber handgun which, as we remember Heath mentioning earlier, is thought to be the same caliber handgun that was used on Bobby Joe. But for Annette as well, it could not be confirmed whether or not she was sexually assaulted. So at this point, police were feeling that whoever killed her must have been a local because of all that, you know, rural terrain where Annette's body was found. But they still didn't have any solid suspects, and they hoped that the woman seen in the pharmacy with Annette would just come forward with some information. But that never freaking happened. So the case was at a standstill. That is, until September of 1982, so a few months later, when Annette's backpack was found, just lying on the side of the road off Highway 9 near Hoosier Pass. Inside Annette's backpack were a, a number of items, including some chapstick, some loose change, a key ring, and a photo of an unidentified man who looked to be in about his mid-twenties. But one thing that investigators found had them questioning everything. Inside the backpack was a lone business card, and the name on it was Jeff Oberholzer. Jeff told detectives that yes, he did give Annette a ride once in the summer of 1981. Which was like a year earlier at this point and over six months before she went missing. So pretty, like, that was a long time ago. Right. So he said that she had been hitchhiking and that he had dropped her off in Frisco for one of her shifts at the Holiday Inn. But first, he stopped at the bank to make a deposit. A witness later stated that they saw Annette and Jeff's truck at the bank, but at the time, they just thought that it was Bobby Joe. Jeff then told detectives that he dropped Annette off in the parking lot of the Holiday Inn, and before she got out of his truck, he handed her a business card for his appliance store. But after that, he explained that he never saw her again. Now police were extremely suspicious of Jeff, but they were also very curious about the man in the photo found in Annette's backpack, and they thought that maybe he could be connected to the case. But strange enough, the man in the photo has never been identified, and he remains a mystery 
even to this day. Which is so bizarre. I can only wonder that maybe it was an old boyfriend or some like a pen pal, like something like that, because I don't know why she would have a photo of her killer in her backpack, you know? Right. (laughs) I mean, and you would assume that this person would have been identified somehow, but they never were. So Jeff had originally told investigators that he didn't know Annette Schnee, but he said after seeing news headlines about her, which included photographs, that's when he decided to come forward and explain that he did give her a ride. Which is a little suspicious. I understand if he's like, I don't know who Annette Schnee is because he didn't know her on a name basis. You know, he had just picked her up once, apparently, but still pretty weird. Yeah, I know. Just making that connection. And what are the chances? Right. That's what I'm saying. Like, what are the chances that Bobby Joe's husband is the guy on the business card of another girl that was found dead? And murdered on the same night. Like, it's just, it's pretty weird. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. But again, I mean, there was absolutely no evidence that could possibly connect Jeff to the murders. And investigators did do their due diligence questioning him for a second time, but there was just nothing. So once again, the case had gone cold and Jeff was officially ruled out as a potential suspect. Seven years later... The Breckenridge Police Department decided to assemble a task force with the hopes of revitalizing the investigation, and a local private investigator felt that he was the right man for the job. Charlie McCormick had previously worked as a homicide detective in Denver, Colorado, between the mid-1960s and 1972, but the life of solving murders had really burnt him out, and by 1976, he was divorced and he really needed a change. So that's when he moved to Breckenridge to work as a PI. And he had actually become really good friends with the sheriff, whose name was Richard Eaton, who was assigned to Bobby Joe and Annette's murders. When Charlie McCormick picked up the case files for the killings in 1989, he became obsessed with the investigation. And he offered up his services to Annette's mother for a whopping $1 a year. Which I wonder why even the dollar? Yeah, I I don't know. Maybe it was just like some sort of legality that he had to... That's a good point. Yeah. Like he's got a charge or something. Either way, a dollar is, of course, very generous. Right. So Charlie started looking at violent crimes that were committed in the area over the previous decade, and a few names popped up. Police had DNA from the crime scenes that were potentially neither Bobby Joe's nor Annette's, but when they tried to find a match in CODIS, nobody was a match in the system. First, they started looking at a convict named Tracy Petricelli, who started a long crime spree in 1981 by killing his wife in Washington and then fleeing to Colorado, 
where he coincidentally stayed at the same Holiday Inn that Annette worked at on the very same night that the murders occurred. Coincidence? Kind of weird. So he eventually made his way to Reno, Nevada, where he was ultimately captured. But when detectives tested his DNA against the DNA that they had, they couldn't find a match. So naturally, they just kind of had to move on. But it's just weird that this murderer happened to stay at the hotel that she worked at that night. I know, it's, it's a crazy connection there. But there was also another suspect that caught investigators' eyes, who had been looked at as a potential suspect from the beginning. A man named Tom Luther. A few months before Annette's body was found in July of 1982, Tom picked up a 21-year-old woman who had been hitchhiking in Frisco, remember where the Holiday Inn is located, and attacked her with a hammer in his truck after raping her. The woman was able to escape with her life, and Tom was sent to prison for 11 years. But while in prison, Tom bragged to other inmates that he had killed Bobby Joe. Police also tested his DNA, but again, there was no match. But get this, when Tom was incarcerated, he began a relationship with a woman on the outside. And when he was released in 1993, he killed her and then fled to West Virginia where he raped and beat a hitchhiker in 1994 before being caught and extradited back to Colorado for his second sentence. This time, it was life. Another super weird, I guess you can say coincidence of this case, and the fact that he started a relationship with a woman while in prison and then got out and then murdered her. Like, what the F? Yeah, psycho. But also the fact that he bragged about killing Bobby Joe, trying to, like, insert himself in that case, but then the DNA didn't match, and then he was just a murderer anyway, and in that area. It's just so weird. Yeah, it, I don't know. It's just extremely coincidental and bizarre. So McCormick and company were yet again at a standstill with the investigation. In 1998, investigators were definitely able to determine that blood DNA found on Bobby Joe's glove, as well as the discarded tissue, showed that it belonged to an unknown male, but this didn't really get them any further along. But then 20 years later in 2018, so one of the original investigators passed away and his son was able to hand over all of the case files, the DNA samples, and more to a former prosecutor named Mitch Morrissey, who co-founded United Data Connect, which tests familial DNA and genealogy to help solve crimes. Charlie McCormick had been working on the case for several decades at this point, and he convinced Mitch Morrissey to test the blood samples taken from the crime scene, and Mitch agreed they were able to narrow down to 12,000 people within a specific family tree. I mean, which is still a lot of people, but we've got a family tree. And after that, they asked a large number of those people to voluntarily submit their DNA, and they all agreed. And this is how they were able to narrow down the suspect list even further, and eventually they zeroed in on one person, Alan Lee Phillips. Alan Lee Phillips was just 30 years old when the murders occurred back in 1982. He didn't have a criminal record and he worked as a mechanic. He had lived in several different areas of Colorado throughout his life, but in February of 2021, he was living in Dumont, Colorado, which is about a 50-minute drive northeast of Breckenridge. He was now a 70-year-old father of three who was semi-retired when police began to track his every move. On February 20th, 2021, detectives watched Allen pick up food through a sonic drive-thru, then head to the Dumont post office to drop something off. 
But while being watched, Allen dropped a brown paper bag into a trash can in the post office. And when he left, detectives retrieved it right away. Just a few days later, that bag was tested for DNA in a laboratory in Denver. And miraculously, after 40 years, police finally found a match. On March 3rd, police set up a pre-planned traffic stop in Dumont, and Alan Lee Phillips was arrested on site and booked into a Park County jail. But did he have any connection to the two young women he's accused of murdering? Aside from giving them a ride, we're not really sure, but we do know that he was in the area that night and not just based on DNA evidence. This part absolutely blows my fucking mind. Okay, so on the night of January 6th, 1982, at around 11 p.m., a Jefferson County Sheriff named Harold Bray was on a commercial flight headed over the Rocky Mountains when he peered out the window to see something strange down below. He saw the flashes of lights signaling an SOS, which is a distress signal in Morse code. So Harold Bray quickly notified the captain of the plane, who then made an emergency search and rescue call to the town closest to the signal. The location was, I believe it's Guanella Pass, which is a high mountain road sitting at 11,000 feet that's virtually undrivable in the winter months, especially on that stormy weathered evening. It's also about an hour's drive from Breckenridge and 40 minutes from Dumont. A man named Dave Montoya was the first person to spring into action to rescue whoever was stuck up on that snowy mountain. And when he arrived, he noticed a 30-year-old man with shoulder-length hair sitting in a pickup truck. And that man was Alan Lee Phillips. Yeah, and when Alan saw Dave, he said, quote, Oh, thank God I'm saved. Before Dave said, you came up over the pass? Alan said he thought that it was a pretty good idea, and he appeared to be intoxicated. Dave noticed that Alan had a rather sizable bruise on his face as well, which Alan explained he suffered when he got out of his truck to go to the bathroom. He said after he relieved himself, he tried to get back in his truck but slipped in the snow, hitting his face on the corner of his vehicle. But Dave actually recognized Alan after a minute, because they had worked with each other at a local mine where Alan was a mechanic and Dave was a miner. But little did anyone know that the man who had been stuck in a snowdrift on Guanella Pass that night was the same man who just hours earlier had taken the life of two beautiful young women. Only after seeing the news 40 years later did Dave Montoya recognize the man that he once rescued. It's really weird to me, though, that, you know, obviously this is insane, but that he was stuck in the snow about an hour away from Breckenridge, which is where both Annette and Bobby Joe were found, and obviously this was a few hours later. This was at 11 p.m. And we know that Bobby Joe was last seen at around, you know, what was it, like almost 8 p.m. And then Annette a few hours earlier. But it is just weird that he was stuck so far away. Yeah. And, you know, to clarify, Bobby Joe and Annette were found outside of Breckenridge. So not, not directly in Breckenridge. They were picked up in Breckenridge. But their bodies were found on, like, rural roads outside. Well, right. But, I mean, uh, what I mean by that is just that it wasn't, like, he. it's not like he was right where they were found. You know what I'm saying? True, true, yeah. But I guess, you know, Dumont and Guanella Pass might be in the same area. So I'm assuming that after he'd killed the two women, maybe he was deciding to drive home to Dumont and got stuck on Guanella Pass. And, I mean, maybe he was in that area because he was hiding more evidence. We just really don't know. Yeah. But anyway, so Alan Lee Phillips 
now faces charges currently of kidnapping, assault with a deadly weapon, and murder after deliberation. Right now, Allen sits in a Park County jail awaiting trial and has not been granted bail. For Bobby Joe Oberholzer and Annette Schnee's family and friends, it's been one long nightmare. But Annette's mother Eileen says that she's glad that she's still alive to see her daughter's case get justice. And by the way, she's now about 88 years old. For Jeff Oberholzer, he's hoping that Alan's arrest will finally bring himself and the rest of Bobby Joe and Annette's family some closure. For Charlie McCormick, the man that never gave up on the case and continued to fight for justice over the years, was just almost at a loss of words, saying, quote, I've tried to define my emotions and it's been very hard to do. I never thought I'd see the day, frankly. so much everybody for listening to this episode of going west yes thank you guys so much for listening to this episode happy holidays we hope you guys stay safe and healthy and uh have a lot of joy and cheer yes absolutely and with this case you know obviously although i hope that more information comes out i hope that alan phillips you know confesses and tells everybody what happened so that the families get actual closure but at the end of the day, we have to remember, you know, his DNA was found at the crime scene. So that's huge. Yeah, definitely. And if we hear anything more about this case, we'll definitely keep you guys updated. Well, yeah, if, if you know, the trial is a big deal and a lot is uncovered, we'll definitely do a part two. So thank you guys so much for listening. Like Heath said, hope you guys have a wonderful holiday. If you're by yourself, hope we can keep you company. And uh, we love you guys. Yeah, and continue to keep sharing the show and leave us a review if you guys want to. We love those. All right, guys, so for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.